Chapter Fifteen, Part One of How I Found Livingstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How I Found Livingstone: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingstone, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Fifteen, Part One. Homeward Bound. Livingstone's last words, the final farewell. Unyanyembe was now to me a terrestrial paradise. Livingstone was no less happy. He was in comfortable quarters, which were a palace compared to his hut in Ujiji. Our storerooms were full of the good things of this life, besides cloth, beads, wire, and the thousand and one impedimenta and paraphernalia of travel with which I had loaded over one hundred and fifty men at Bagamayo. I had seventy-four loads of miscellaneous things, the most valuable of which were now to be turned over for Livingstone, for his march back to the sources of the Nile. It was a great day with us when, with hammer and chisel, I broke open the doctor's boxes, that we might feast our famished stomachs on the luxuries which were to redeem us from the effect of the cacotrophic dura and maize food we had been subjected to in the wilderness. I conscientiously believed that a diet on potted ham, crackers, and jellies would make me as invincible as Talus, and that I only required a stout flail to be able to drive the mighty Wagogo into the regions of annihilation, should they dare even to wink in a manner I disapproved. The first box opened contained three tins of biscuits, six tins of potted hams, tiny things, not much larger than thimbles, which when opened proved to be nothing more than a tablespoonful of minced meat, plentifully seasoned with pepper. The doctor's stores fell five hundred degrees below zero in my estimation. Next were brought out five pots of jam, one of which was opened, this was also a delusion. The stone jars weighed a pound, and in each was found a little over a teaspoonful of jam. Barely we began to think our hopes and expectations had been raised to too high a pitch. Three bottles of curry were next produced, but who cares for curry? Another box was opened, and out tumbled a fat, dumpy Dutch cheese, hard as a brick, but sound and good, though it is bad for the liver in Unyawemzi. Then another cheese was seen, but this was all eaten up. It was hollow and a fraud. The third box contained nothing but two sugar-loaves, the fourth candles, the fifth bottles of salt, Harvey, Worcester, and Redding sauces, essence of anchovies, pepper, and mustard. Bless me! What food were these for the revivifying of a moribund such as I was? The sixth box contained four shirts, two pairs of stout shoes, some stockings and shoestrings, which delighted the doctor so much when he tried them on that he exclaimed, "'Richard is himself again.' "'That man,' said I, "'whoever he is, is a friend indeed.' "'Yes, that is my friend Waller.' The five other boxes contained potted meat and soups, but the twelfth, containing one dozen bottles of medicinal brandy, was gone, and a strict cross-examination of Asmani, the head man of Livingston's caravan, elicited the fact that not only was one case of brandy missing, but also two bales of cloth and four bags of the most valuable beads in Africa, Sami Sami, 
which are as gold with the natives. I was grievously disappointed after the stores had been examined. Everything proved to be deceptions in my jaundiced eyes. Out of the tins of biscuits when opened there was only one sound box, the whole of which would not make one full meal. The soups, who cared for meat soups in Africa? Are there no bullocks and sheep and goats in the land from which far better soup can be made than any that was ever potted? Peas or any other kind of vegetable soup would have been a luxury, but chicken and game soups? What nonsense! I then overhauled my own stores. I found some fine old brandy and one bottle of champagne still left, though it was evident, in looking at the cloth bales, that dishonesty had been at work, and some person happened to suggest Asmani, the head man sent by Dr. Kirk in charge of Dr. Livingston's goods, as the guilty party. Upon his treasures being examined, I found eight or ten colored cloths with the mark of my own agent at Zanzibar on them. As he was unable to give a clear account of how they came in his box, they were at once confiscated and distributed among the most deserving of the doctor's people. Some of the watchmen also accused him of having entered into my storeroom, and of having abstracted two or three goras of domestics from my bales, and of having, some days afterwards, snatched the keys from the hands of one of my men, and broken them, lest other people might enter and find evidences of his guilt. As Asmani was proved to be another of the moral idiots, Livingston discharged him on the spot. Had we not arrived so soon at Unyanyembe, it is probable that the entire stock sent from Zanzibar had in time disappeared. Unyanyembe, being rich in fruits, grain, and cattle, we determined to have our Christmas dinner over again in style, and being fortunately in pretty good health, I was enabled to superintend its preparation. Never was such prodigality seen in a tembe of Unyamweze as was seen in ours, nor were ever such delicacies provided. There were but few Arabs in Unyanyembe when we arrived, as they were investing the stronghold of Mirambo. About a week after our return, the little mannequin, Sheikh Said bin Salim, El Walhi, who was the commander-in-chief of their forces, came to Quihara from the front. But the little sheikh was in no great hurry to greet the man he had wronged so much. As soon as we heard of his arrival we took the opportunity to send men immediately after the goods, which were forwarded to the Wali's care soon after Livingston's departure for Mikindani Bay. The first time we sent men for them the governor declared himself too sick to attend to such matters but the second day they were surrendered, with a request that the doctor would not be very angry at their condition, as the white ants had destroyed everything. The stores that this man had detained at Unyanyembe were in a most sorry state. The expenses were prepaid for their carriage to Ujiji, but the goods had been purposely detained at this place by Said ben Salim since 1867, that he might satisfy his appetite for liquor, and probably fall heir to two valuable guns that were known to be with them. The white ants had not only eaten up bodily the box in which the guns were packed, but they had also eaten the gun stocks. The barrels were corroded, and the locks were quite destroyed. The brandy bottles, most singular to relate, had also fallen a prey to the voracious and irresistible destroyers the white ants, and, by some unaccountable means, 
they had imbibed the potent Hennessy, and replaced the corks with corn-cobs. The medicines had also vanished, and the zinc-pots in which they had been snugly packed up were destroyed by corrosion. Two bottles of brandy and one small zinc case of medicines only were saved out of the otherwise utter wreck. I also begged the doctor to send to Sheikh Said, and ask him if he had received the two letters dispatched by him upon his first arrival at Ujiji, for Dr. Clerk and Lord Clarendon, and if he had forwarded them to the coast, as he was desired to do. The reply to the messengers was in the affirmative, and subsequently I obtained the same answer in the presence of the doctor. On the 22nd of February, the pouring rain, which had dogged us the entire distance from Ujiji, ceased, and we had now beautiful weather, and while I prepared for the homeward march, the doctor was busy writing his letters, and entering his notes into his journal, which I was to take to his family. When not thus employed, we paid visits to the Arabs at Tabura, by whom we were both received with that bounteous hospitality for which they are celebrated." Among the goods turned over by me to Dr. Livingston, while assorting such cloths as I wished to retain for my homeward trip, were first-class American sheeting, 285 dotty, 1140 yards, first-class kaniki, blue stuff, 16 dotty, 64 yards, medium kaniki, blue stuff, 60 dotty, two hundred and forty yards medium dabwani cloth forty one dotty sixty four yards medium barsati cloth twenty eight dotty one hundred and twelve yards printed handkerchiefs seventy dotty two hundred and eighty yards medium rahani cloth one hundred and twenty seven dotty five hundred and eight yards medium ismahili cloth twenty dotty eighty yards medium sohari cloth twenty dotty eighty yards four pieces fine kungara red check twenty two dotty eighty eight yards four gar rahani eight dotty thirty two yards total number of cloths six hundred and ninety seven dotty two thousand seven hundred and eighty eight cloths besides cloth two thousand seven hundred eighty eight yards there were assorted beads, sixteen sacks, weight equals nine hundred and ninety-two pounds, brass wire, number five and six, ten fraslija, two hundred and fifty pounds, one canvas tent, waterproof, one airbed, one boat, canvas, one bag of tools, carpenters, one rip-saw, two barrels of tar, twelve sheets of ship's copper, equals sixty pounds, clothes, one Jocelyn breech-loader, metallic cartridge, one Stars breech-loader, metallic cartridge, one Henry sixteen-shooter breech-loader, one revolver, two hundred rounds revolver ammunition, two thousand rounds Jocelyn and Stars ammunition, fifteen hundred rounds Henry rifle ammunition, cooking utensils, medicine chest, books, sextant, canvas bags, etc., 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 the above made a total of about forty loads. Many things in the list would have brought fancy prices in Unyanyembe, especially the carbines and ammunition, the saw, carpenter's tools, the beads and wire. Out of the thirty-three loads which were stored for him in my tembe, the stock sent to Livingston, November 1st, 1870, 
but few of them would be available for his return trip to Rua and Montuema. The six hundred and ninety-six doti of cloth which were left to him formed the only marketable articles of value he possessed, and in Manuema, where the natives manufactured their own cloth, such an article would be considered a drug, while my beads and wire, with economy, would suffice to keep him and his men over two years in those regions. His own cloth, and what I gave him, made in the aggregate one thousand three hundred ninety-six doti, which at two doti per day for food were sufficient to keep him and sixty men six hundred ninety-six days. He thus had four years' supplies. The only articles he lacked to make a new and completely fitted up expedition were the following, a list of which he and I drew up. A few tins of American wheat flour, a few tins of soda crackers, a few tins of preserved fruits, a few tins of salmon, ten pounds of hyson tea, some sewing thread and needles, one dozen official envelopes, nautical almanac for eighteen seventy two and eighteen seventy three, one blank journal, one chronometer stopped, one chain for refractory people. With the articles just named he would have a total of seventy loads, but without carriers they were an encumbrance to him, for, with only the nine men which he now had, he could go nowhere with such a splendid assortment of goods. I was therefore commissioned to enlist, as soon as I reached Zanzibar, fifty freemen, arm them with a gun and a hatchet each man, besides accoutrement, and to purchase two thousand bullets, one thousand flints, and ten kegs of gunpowder. The men were to act as carriers, to follow wherever Livingston might desire to go. For without men he was simply tantalized with the aspirations roused in him by the knowledge that he had an abundance of means, which were irrealizable without carriers. All the wealth of London and New York piled before him were totally unavailable to him without the means of locomotion. No Minyamwezi engages himself as carrier during wartime. You who have read the diary of my life at Unyanyembe know what stubborn conservatives the Wanyamwezi are. A duty lay yet before me which I owed to my illustrious companion, and that was to hurry to the coast as if on a matter of life and death act for him in the matter of enlisting men as if he were there himself, to work for him with the same zeal as I would for myself, not to halt or rest until his desires should be gratified. And this I vowed to do, but it was a death-blow to my project of going down the Nile and getting news of Sir S. Baker. The doctor's task of writing his letters was ended. He delivered into my hand twenty letters for Great Britain, six for Bombay, two for New York, and one for Zanzibar. The two letters for New York were for James Gordon Bennett, Jr., as he alone, not his father, was responsible for the expedition sent under my command. I beg the reader's pardon for republishing one of these letters here, as its spirit and style indicate the man, the mere knowledge of whose life or death was worth a costly expedition. Ujiji on Tanganyika, East Africa, November, 1871 james gordon bennett jr esq my dear sir it is in general somewhat difficult to write one we have never seen it feels so much like addressing an abstract idea but the presence of your representative mr h m stanley in this distant region takes away the strangeness i should otherwise have felt 
and in writing to thank you for the extreme kindness that prompted you to send him, I feel quite at home. If I explain the forlorn condition in which he found me, you will easily perceive that I have good reason to use very strong expressions of gratitude. I came to Ujiji off a tramp of between four hundred and five hundred miles, beneath a blazing vertical sun, having been baffled, worried, defeated, and forced to return, when almost in sight of the end of the geographical part of my mission, by a number of hast-cased Muslim slaves sent to me from Zanzibar instead of men. The sore heart, made still sorer by the woeful sights I had seen of man's inhumanity to man, racked and told on the bodily frame, and depressed it beyond measure. I thought that I was dying on my feet. It is not too much to say that almost every step of the weary, sultry way was in pain, and I reached Ujiji a mere ruckle of bones. There I found that some five hundred pounds sterling worth of goods which I had ordered from Zanzibar had unaccountably been entrusted to a drunken half-case Muslim tailor, who, after squandering them for sixteen months on the way to Ujiji, finished up by selling off all that remained for slaves and ivory for himself. He had divined on the Koran and found that I was dead. He had also written to the governor of Unyanyembe that he had sent slaves after me to Manyuma, who returned and reported my decease and begged permission to sell off the few goods that his drunken appetite had spared. He, however, knew perfectly well from men who had seen me that I was alive and waiting for the goods and men. But as for morality, he is evidently an idiot, and there being no law here except that of the dagger or musket, I had to sit down in great weakness destitute of everything save a few barter-cloths and beads, which I had taken the precaution to leave here in case of extreme need. The near prospect of beggary among Eugenians made me miserable. I could not despair, because I laughed so much at a friend who, on reaching the mouth of the Zambezi, said that he was tempted to despair on breaking the photograph of his wife. We could have no success after that. Afterward, the idea of despair had to me such a strong smack of the ludicrous that it was out of the question. Well, when I had got to about the lowest verge, vague rumors of an English visitor reached me. I thought of myself as the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, but neither priest, Levite, nor Samaritan could possibly pass my way. Yet the good Samaritan was close at hand, and one of my people rushed up at the top of his speed, and in great excitement gasped out, an Englishman coming! I see him! And off he darted to meet him. An American flag, the first ever seen in these parts, at the head of a caravan, told me the nationality of the stranger. I am as cold and non-demonstrative as we islanders are usually reputed to be, but your kindness made my frame thrill. It was indeed overwhelming, and I said in my soul, Let the richest blessings descend from the highest on you and yours. The news Mr. Stanley had to tell was thrilling. The mighty political changes on the continent, the success of the Atlantic cables, the election of General Grant, and many other topics riveted my attention for days together, and had an immediate and beneficial effect on my health. I had been without news from home for years save what I could glean from a few Saturday reviews and punch of 1868. The appetite revived, and in a week I began to feel strong again. Mr. Stanley brought a most kind and encouraging dispatch from Lord Clarendon, whose loss I sincerely deplore, 
the first I have received from the Foreign Office since 1866, and information that the British government had kindly sent a thousand pounds sterling to my aid. Up to his arrival I was not aware of any pecuniary aid. I came unsalaried, but this want is now happily repaired, and I am anxious that you and all my friends should know that, though uncheered by letter, I have stuck to the task which my friend Sir Roderick Murchison sent me with John Bullish tenacity, believing that all would come right at last. The watershed of south-central Africa is over seven hundred miles in length. The fountains thereon are almost innumerable. That is, it would take a man's lifetime to count them. From the watershed they converge into four large rivers, and these again into two mighty streams in the great Nile Valley, which begins in ten degrees to twelve degrees south latitude. It was ere long light dawned on the most ancient problem, and gave me a clear idea of the drainage. I had to feel my way, and every step of the way, and was, generally, groping in the dark. But who cared where the rivers ran? We drank our fill and let the rest run by. The Portuguese who visited Kazembe asked for slaves and ivory, and heard of nothing else. I asked about the waters, questioned and cross-questioned, until I was almost afraid of being set down as afflicted with hydrocephalus. My last work, in which I had been greatly hindered from want of suitable attendance, was following the central line of drainage down through the country of the cannibals, called Manyuma, or shortly, Manyema. This line of drainage has four large lakes in it. The fourth I was near when obliged to turn. It is from one to three miles broad, and never can be reached at any point, or at any time of the year. Two western drains, the Lufira, or Bartle Frere's River, flow into it at Lake Comolando. Then the great river Lomam flows through the Lake Lincoln into it too, and seems to form the western arm of the Nile, on which Petherick traded. Now I knew about six hundred miles of the watershed, and unfortunately the seventh hundred is the most interesting of the whole. For in it, if I am not mistaken, four fountains arise from an earthen mound, and the last of the four becomes, at no great distance off, a large river. Two of these run north to Egypt, Lufira and Lomam, and two run south into inner Ethiopia, as the Lambai, or Upper Zambezi, and the Kofel. Are not these sources of the Nile mentioned by the Secretary of Minerva, in the city of Sais to Herodotus? I have heard of them so often, and at great distances off, that I cannot doubt their existence, and in spite of the sore longing for home that seizes me every time I think of my family, I wish to finish up by their rediscovery. Five hundred pounds sterling worth of goods have been unaccountably entrusted to slaves, and I have been over a year on the way, instead of four months. I must go where they lie at your expense, ere I can put the natural completion to my work. And if my disclosures regarding the terrible Ujiji slavery should lead to the suppression of the East Coast slave trade, I shall regard that as a greater matter by far than the discovery of all the Nile sources together. Now that you have done with domestic slavery forever, lend us your powerful aid toward this great object. This fine country is blighted, as with a curse from above, in order that the slavery privileges of the petty sultan of Zanzibar may not be infringed, and the rights of the crown of Portugal, which are mythical, should be kept in abeyance till some future time,
when Africa will become another India to Portuguese slave-traders. I conclude by again thanking you most cordially for your great generosity, and am gratefully yours, David Livingston. To the above letter I have nothing to add. It speaks for itself. But then I thought it was the best evidence of my success. For my own part, I cared not one jot or tittle about his discoveries, except so far as it concerned the newspaper which commissioned me for the search. It is true I felt curious as to the result of his travels, but since he confessed that he had not completed what he had begun, I felt considerable delicacy to ask for more than he could afford to give. His discoveries were the fruits of his own labors. To him they belonged. By their publication he hoped to obtain his reward, which he desired to settle on his children. Yet Livingston had a higher and nobler ambition than the mere pecuniary sum he would receive. He followed the dictates of duty. Never was such a willing slave to that abstract virtue. His inclinations impelled him home, the fascinations of which it required the sternest resolves to resist. With every foot of new ground he travelled over he forged a chain of sympathy which should hereafter bind the Christian nations in bonds of love and charity to the heathen of the African tropics. If he were able to complete this chain of love, by actual discovery and description of them to embody such peoples and nations as still live in darkness, so as to attract the good and charitable of his own land to bestir themselves for the redemption and salvation, this Livingston would consider an ample reward. A delirious and fatuous enterprise, a quixotic scheme, some will say. Not it, my friends, for as sure as the sun shines on both Christian and infidel, civilized and pagan, the day of enlightenment will come, and though Livingston, the apostle of Africa, may not behold it himself, nor we younger men, nor yet our children, the hereafter will see it, and posterity will recognize the daring pioneer of its civilization. End of chapter 15, part 1